This sermon was recorded online during our season of Shelter in Place in Mountain View, California. Psychiatrists that have attempted, uh, attempted to describe what love is, or how it works, or how we experience it, or how we can make it better. There's a recent article uh, of research in the Harvard Gazette about how one particular team looked at love from its effect on our physiology, seeing like if you're in love, how does that change things? If, if things are not going well, how does that impact you? They, they didn't find much utility in it other than the fact that when they do counseling, they said that if I say to a person, hey, the anger in your relationship isn't helpful, it's likely to go over their head. But if I say anger in your relationship is raising your cortisol levels, now they pay attention. So maybe that's just a statement of how things have progressed. But in the end, this particular uh, psychiatrist who did the research says, I think we know a lot more scientifically about love in the brain than we did a couple of decades ago, but I don't think it tells us very much that we already didn't know about love. It's kind of interesting. It's kind of fun to study. But, to do, but do we think that it makes us better at love, that it makes us helping people with love? Probably not much. Earlier in the article, he was quoted, he quoted the late comedian George Burns, who described love this way, love is like a backache. It doesn't show up in an x-ray, but you know it's there. So there are a lot of variations on how we might understand it. And I think that is an important question for the believer as we encounter this gospel passage that Cindy just read. Because in it, Jesus is saying, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. So to understand how we might actually fulfill this command, it would be helpful to understand what love is. And indeed, it is a command. It's in the imperative tense. It's not a value. It's not an aspiration. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. And Jesus is giving it to his disciples at the start of what becomes the upper room discourse in John's gospel. And so when we ask that question, Lord, what do you mean by love one another? Because it can mean any number of things. But then we see Jesus already saying, well, you love one another as I have loved you. But I'm not sure how much that actually helps us. How, do, how does Jesus love us? Well, the first, you know, there's been numerous things written, you know, volumes on this. But at its essence, Jesus loves us, first of all, by, by wanting our best. He, he, he says, you were created to know me, to be with me, to be free from sin and all those things that hem us in, things that we still run after, but he knows that they are not good for us. He knows that they harm us. He knows that we are going to be better off. We will be moving from better to the best that he has for us to the extent we let those go, but he knows that we cannot do it. And so to want our best, which is to be alive with him forever, also required him to pursue us at great cost. So first, love seeks the best of the other. And love, and love means that we pursue that person at cost to ourselves. This is what it cost Jesus, his life. 
and not just a quick execution, but something that was horrendous. Um, just we got in touch with that and focused on that as a community and as a church over Easter. But even though he wants our best and he pursues us with everything that he is and ultimately gives all that he can, nevertheless, we resist. And so he, his love is also borne out by the perseverance with which he, he continues to look for us in spite of our resistance. Like, you know, just the image of a child who's going by the candy aisle in a, in a Safeway or something like that. Their eyes automatically go towards the candy, all the ones they like, and they strain with every sort of fiber of their being towards the, the particular bar. And the parent who loves them knows that that's not good, knows that it'll keep them up till 11 o'clock, far past anything that makes sense, as well as ruin their appetite and create all kinds of no fun things for the household. And so they lovingly hold them while the child resists. This is just kind of a shorthand way of understanding when Jesus says, love others as I have loved you, I, you know, this goes through my mind. Who knows all the things that went through the disciples' mind when they were hearing this? It goes through your mind as you hear that. Lord, love me as you love me. You want me to love others as you've loved me. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves as part of the later part of his career where he's tr trying to understand the ways that the word love, is, it comes out of the Greek. There's four particular ways in which love is used. When he comes to the word agape, which is what's used in John's text, he says this, he says, God who needs nothing loves into existence wholly superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. That would be us. He creates the universe already foreseeing, or should we say seeing, that there are no tenses in God. The buzzing cloud of flies from the cross, the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the messial nerves, the repeated and suffocation as the body droops, the repeated torture of back and arms as it is time after time for breath's sake hitched up. Herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. And so if we're going to love others as Jesus loved us, we have to be connected to this kind of love that he displays you know, so starkly on the cross but continues after he's resurrected from the dead in countless ways. To love others as Jesus loves means we need to be connected. And that is really the essence of loving other people, is it not? It is to take the love that God has for us and pass a portion of that in whatever small measure that is to someone else. If they, for example, need forgiveness, that's an act of love. Anybody, any, go ahead and amen if you, if you want to agree with that. But when, when we've been hurt or we've been wounded, it, it takes a lot in our hearts, probably more than we care to admit, to say, you're forgiven. To say, you know, that did wound me, but I'm not going to hold that against you. I'm not going to keep score. I'm not going to stack that up. I'm not going to keep it on a secret account that I'm going to reveal when the time is right and I can really kind of get my own back. That's the parable of the unmerciful servant. In Matthew 18, the unmerciful servant owes an unpayable debt. I don't know, $20 billion. Can't pay it, goes to the king. The king, and he says, he's playing for time. I'm sorry, I can't pay it. Give me a little more time. I'm, you know, I'm sure I can kind of make things work out. Of course, there's no way he can make it work out. The king forgives him. 
And then he goes and he's relieved and I'm sure overjoyed at that expression of extravagant mercy or love, an aspect of love. But we know how the rest of it goes. He finds a fellow that owes him $20 and he demands payment. And the fellow says the same thing that this servant said to the king, I can't pay you back now, but give me time. But he doesn't get the time. The man, the servant who had been forgiven insists that this guy goes to jail until he can pay everything. And of course, that gets back to the king, and we know what happens to the unmerciful servant. To love somebody is to take what Christ has done for us in the way he has forgiven us and taken a tiny portion of it, relatively speaking, to the way we've been offended, and are giving that to the other person. That is how we love others, as Jesus loved us. So when we love, express love that way, we're not trying to manufacture something that we don't have. I don't, you know, when you think of the things, the fruit of the Spirit, faith, love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, I, we can go down the list and find, oh, I didn't do that so well. Oh, I, I don't, you know, I'm not so good in the self-control department. I wish I had more faith. I wish, you know, the joy of the Lord was more expressive. If we use that as somewhat of a comparative list, we can see that we, we don't have those qualities of the Lord necessarily in the measure that we would like to have them. And we, the temptation will be to think, well, I just got to muscle up and do this. But to love others as Jesus loved us is not to try to manufacture or muscle up. It's instead to take, just to take something because we don't have that, but just pass on what we've already received from Christ. You know, there's a lot of, uh, in, our, in this economy, if you follow any of the economic news, whatever disruptions are usually blamed on supply chain issues. You know, supply chain is broken. I can't get stuff at Costco. I'm missing that. Most recently, baby formula seems to be in short supply. That's a supply chain issue. But when it comes to being able to love others as Christ has loved us, there, there's not a supply chain issue. It's as straightforward as turning to Jesus and saying, I, I, need, your, I, I need your love. I, I need to get in touch with that so that I can extend it to the person in front of me who needs it. And that really is the secret. We, I, the sermon title is The Secret of, of Loving Others. It is, the secret is this, that in that moment that we experience the, the opportunity to express love, and particularly the hard parts, like forgiveness, um, then it's to, to feel Christ's love for us in that, in that place. If the unmerciful servant had just gotten in touch with the, the lavish forgiveness that he had experienced, it may have been a lot easier just to extend that to the person who owed him so little in comparison. And that is the same for us. Whatever love area that we are called upon to express, whether that's to go the extra mile, whether that's to not make a comment on something that necessarily hurt us because we just choose because we think love, we, we're in touch with the verse that says love covers a multitude of sins. Any number of ways we can apply it, we have to turn to Christ himself, the Holy Spirit who will enable us to do that. We know, here's a signal that says it's probably past time for us to do that. Have you ever found yourself when called upon to love someone, you know, you're more in touch perhaps with feeling impatient about it or irritated by it. And you're like, oh my goodness, 
I've been loving this person so much in this certain particular way, in this certain grace that I've been giving him, so much mercy, whatever generosity, I've been doing it, and honestly, I'm just getting tired, just getting irritated. That irritation is a good thing if you take it as the signal of, that, that we need to turn to Christ. Like, it, irritation says that your gas tank's kind of on E. The little amber lights up, you know, uh, and it's, it's the time to turn to the Lord. I don't know about your gas tank. Mine has a little thing that lights up when it gets to, I think, a gallon or two left. I used to take that as sort of a challenge. Like, okay, let's see how far I can go. Um, but that's not a good way to deal with the Holy Spirit prompting us gently to say, you know, if you're getting worked up about this thing, now would be a really good time to turn to, to Christ and say, Lord, I need you to fill me up with, with this aspect of love that I, so I can extend it to this person. How can we just put some practical legs on this for a little bit? How, how can we practically do that? I picked up a book not too long ago. It's, some of you may have read it already by James Clear. It's called Atomic Habits. The whole idea is that little things that we do consistently will reap big results. He uses as his opener the example of the British Cycling Commission. I'm not, I'm not doing it justice. That They have a fancier British name than that. But basically, these are the guys in charge of British cycling and, and thought it was woeful that there had been no British cyclist that had ever won the Tour de France in over 100 years. Tour de France, over two weeks of racing up and down France and in some other countries, 2,200 miles. It's a big, grueling team race. And so they didn't like this state of affairs. Maybe there's some sort of Anglo-Franco thing going on, as often is the case. But they, they ended up hiring a guy named Dave um, Brailsford, Brailsford to say, you've got to get this group into shape. And so he didn't kind of come on Mr. Strong and, and fire him up with a passionate speech. There wasn't any big tunnel that they could run through and get stoked. Rather, he just did a series of changes. Atomic habits in the size of an atom. That's the premise here. Something small that has a huge impact. What did he do? Just things that, I, you know, I don't know if you'd think of this. He changed the bike seats to make them more comfortable. He put alcohol on the, rubbing alcohol on the tires to allow them to get a better grip. He required the cyclist to wear heated overshorts in order to produce the ideal temperature for their muscles when they were riding. Each of these in and of themselves was nothing significant, but the combination of these and the incremental benefits that they were combined so that the British cycling team got better and better. Brailsford shows up in 2003, five years later. That's all, it only takes five years to get these guys into shape. They dominate the 2008 Olympics. They, they crush many of the events. 2008 is also the year that uh, Bradley Wiggins wins the first Tour de France for England. The next year, it's Chris Froome, and he wins a few more years after that. This is Clear's opening in Atomic Habits to just say little things make a big difference. How, how does that work for us? If we talk about how to apply, how to love others as Christ loved us, that we don't have to be so concerned about the grand gesture. It can very much be about the little atomic habits that will produce the biggest sense of being, of, of being loved. Because most of the people that were not doing such a great job of loving are the people we're doing life with most of the time.
Here's uh, one application in addition to forgiveness. I, I think about patience. In our humanness, we run into situations that just kind of create in us a, uh, a sense of like, how long, oh Lord, is this going to go on? How long do I have to be in this organization that just isn't doing it? How long is this little family dynamic out here, maybe it's extended family, going to continue to play out without some sort of interruption? How long do I have to deal with whatever this health challenge is? To ask the question how long is not to have a lack of faith, is rather to recognize that there are many things in this life that do challenge us, and part of the challenge comes in their extended nature. And so it, it produces a certain impatience in us. What do we do in those times? See, Jesus understands that. He's, he's patient with us. He knows that, that when, if I just think, apply it for a moment to human dynamics, we, we can be really impatient with others in our life and far more generous and patient in our own. We go, oh my goodness, you haven't got that right. We're, we're not maybe saying this, hopefully. If you are, then see me afterwards. But in our hearts, we can think, Man, is, are you still dealing with this? Is that still a thing? But when it comes to our own stuff, we're like, oh, yeah, thank you, Lord. You're still digging around the plant. You're still watering. You're still pruning. You're still trying to help me to bear fruit. Like, we, we, we grade ourselves on the curve. We're, we're always passing. There's never a no pass. But with others, we don't necessarily give them the benefit of the doubt. How does, how does God help us in those times? I think it's this, again, back to the secret, to just say, Lord, you are so patient with me in each and every one of those situations. You haven't given up on me. I'm alive. I have an opportunity to bless others, to love others as you have loved me, but I can't do it on my own. But I can do one thing. I can be patient with them. I can take the patience that you lavish on me, and I can give them just a very small portion in comparison but it'll be sufficient for what they need and what our relationship needs, sufficient for glorifying you and for being your effective disciple. I can do that, but I can do that with your help only. Love me as I have loved you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. Friends, if we would apply these in small, whatever small increments the Holy Spirit brings to our life, we would see huge or noticeable changes. But don't try to do that. I'm not going to try to do that on my own. I just, in that moment, the secret again is this, to turn to Jesus and say, Lord, just give me what I need to be the person who needs your love. Help me to pass on what you're already giving to me to them that they might truly know who you are. If we focus on that, the other part about all people knowing that we are his disciples, naturally falls into place and would naturally produce some kind of thanksgiving to God. Amen. Thanks for being with us online in the Sermon Podcast. To find out more about Holy Trinity Silicon Valley, head to www.holytrinitysv.org